Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 6. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge, talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England, and I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we will be discussing topics that doctors want to know more about, but either don't know who to ask or where to find the information they need. Today's episode is entitled, Formal Training Pathways, Are They Really All That? From personal experience, the generally accepted and indeed encouraged status quo after leaving medical school and completing two mandatory years as a foundation doctor in the UK is to join a training programme. To become a consultant in most hospital specialties, doctors apply to a training programme made up of one or two uncoupled sections that endeavour to pop you out at the other end as a fully formed consultant. Over the last few years, there's been no end of issues with the changing landscape of training pathways, some stories even reaching the national press. Some such issues include, but are not limited to, changes in curriculum, the creation of bottlenecks between uncoupled stages of training, and changes in the requirements such as examinations for how we select trainees. But despite what we may be led to believe, is formal training pathway really the only option? Is becoming a consultant and working in the same way that people have for many years the only option available to those wanting to work in hospital specialties in the NHS? Given we're facing some of the biggest issues with our medical workforce and the populations that we serve, can we offer those who feel burnt out, fed up or simply stuck on the treadmill another option than signing up to a training programme where they might well feel their autonomy is taken away, they're expected to rotate to different workplaces every six months or juggle caring and family commitments while commuting hours a day to work without any choice or control. Here to talk about alternative career pathways as our expert today is Rob Fleming. Rob, I'm delighted you can join us. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hello, hello, and um, thank you very much again for inviting me to come and chat to you guys tonight. Um, So I am what is known as a SAS doctor. Um, In fact, I am a specialty doctor anaesthetist. I started my career pathway exactly as you described. In fact, I was the modernising medical careers year, so I graduated into 2005. I was one of the first foundation doctors because it was a new thing at that point. And there was every expectation for me and my cohort that we would progress seamlessly from foundation training into um, run-through training programmes, which is exactly what I did. So I finished foundation year two and I progressed straight into what was then ST1 in anaesthesia. Um, And I had every expectation, as I imagine most medical graduates do, um, that I would progress seamlessly through my career um, and be spat out the other end um, as a consultant at about year nine. Um, That was the plan for modernising medical careers. That was what was supposed to happen. Um, And of course, all good plans. Um, all good plans go astray. Um, and my own career didn't necessarily take the path that I expected it to when I was a foundation doctor. So I started training in a formal training program. Um, I changed deanery. I took an interdeanery transfer, but otherwise my training progressed the way it was supposed to. Um, and then by the time I was at ST4, ST5 point, I had reached a stage that I think an awful lot of people reach. Um, I was very tired Um, And I was trying very hard to balance the requirements of a training programme against the things that I wanted to do with my life. 
Um, I'd met my wife, who was a couple of years older than I was. We wanted to start a family. We wanted to buy a house. We wanted to commit geographically to a location. Um, and it was extraordinarily difficult. Um, and coupled with that, I had some experiences at work that were quite upsetting. I had some clinical experiences, as, as we all do as we progress through our training programs. Um, and I found myself questioning whether or not I was on the right path for me. Um, and I was very fortunate um, in that over the course of my training program, I had encountered a number of very inspirational Sassanicities. I'd encountered people who had chosen or found themselves walking an alternative career pathway. Um, and they seemed to be happier than I was. Um, so I took a conscious decision to resign my training number and to do something else. Um, so I've been a specialty doctor in Eastis since um, 2012, so just over 10 years now. Um, and I, I guess what I'd hope to talk to you guys tonight is what I've done within that role, because I think an awful lot more people are going to find themselves walking a path that looks an awful lot like the one that I've been walking for the last 10 years. Um, mm. By choice or by design um, or by necessity, people are going to be doing this. Um, so I'm hoping I can give you all a little bit of knowledge this evening. I can't wait to hear some of your fascinating reflections about the questions that I have tonight. Um, I'm also really grateful to have my friend and colleague, Jason Ramsing, with us today. Um, Jason, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, thank you very much for inviting me for this podcast, uh, Clara. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, um, and I went to medical school there and I graduated from medical school in 2009, um, following which our foundation program is a bit different from, from the UK. So it's only one year and everyone does the same rotations. Um, everyone, all the F1, F, all FY1s do the same rotation. Um, following that, I worked for two years in general surgery in Trinidad. Um, and it's not really a structured program. You're just in that and you can be in that program you know, for five or that essay, that surgical house officer role for like five, 10, 15 years if you wanted to. So it's not a formal training program, but you do get sort of that apprenticeship type model where you work with one consultant for those number of years and you learn different skills. Um, and general surgery back in Trinidad is a mix of everything. So we don't have subspecialists. So that general surgeon will do breast surgery. He'll do colorectal surgery, pancreatic surgery, everything. Um, and that was really good two years, I think, in Trinidad because I did develop quite a lot of core surgical skills that have benefited me throughout my training. Um, after finishing those two years, I did my um, membership exams and then I decided that I wanted to do a bit more structured training. And I made that decision because I wanted my training to be formally recognized, not only in Trinidad, but also internationally. So I made that decision to move to the UK and um, it was quite difficult as an international medical graduate to actually apply and get into a training program. This was back in 2012, so it was before Brexit. Um, so how uh, it worked at that point in time was that any job available in the UK had to go to a suitable UK or EU candidate first before it could be offered out to anyone outside of the EU. Um, so I came over here and I did like a postgraduate degree and that allowed me to apply for training. Um, and then I got my training number after my uh, postgraduate degree in the West of Scotland. And then I trained in the West of Scotland for six years in general surgery. And then I did a fellowship here in Newcastle and that's where I met the lovely Clara. <laughs> and uh, 
after that, um, after that fellowship, I got a consultant job here in Newcastle, and I've been a consultant for almost three years now. Um, yeah, and it's it's a bit different from um, from uh, from 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 Rob's uh, experience, but I had a very good experience in my training program, and didn't really have any negative experiences to talk about. So I'll probably give a bit more detail uh, on that later on in the chat. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, and. Last but very much not least, um, we have a familiar face back with us on Doctor Informed, uh, Flo Wedmore. Um, Flo, can you reacquaint our listeners with who you are? Yeah, um, and thanks for having me back again, um, Clara. Uh, so, I, so my name's Flo, I'm a medical registrar, um, but currently I'm on a fellowship scheme as a sustainability fellow based at the BMJ. Um, and I guess just to recount my training course um to give some context for this is that I after foundation I had a year out um, and then I did core medical training um but actually went less than full time towards the end of that because of that I guess it's, it's echoing some of what Rob says of you know wanting other things to be doing other things alongside that um and then um since then I've been I worked as an education fellow and now doing this fellowship and I am undecided as to where I'm going next um so interested to have this discussion here today an undifferentiated stem cell trainee you could go in any direction as a result of this conversation excellent well I think we should just dive straight into this topic because I think it's going to be another meaty one today um but that'll be straight after a message from our sponsor at medical protection we know better than anyone the ups and downs that hospital doctors face today 125 years ago, we were started by doctors for doctors. And that same doctor-to-doctor experience still sets us apart in supporting our members. We go above and beyond the NHS scheme that only covers you for damages from negligence claims, giving you the right to request assistance if your clinical practice is called into question by the GMC or your employer. We can help with responding to and resolving patient complaints. And our host of risk management resources help you stay on top of your game. Then there's our 24-7 medico-legal advice line, which you can call as many times as you like without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. We can do all of this because we're a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation where every decision we make is to benefit our members. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org UK. Okay, back to the show. Um, so, Rob, you mentioned that you were a SAS doctor. Can you tell me what a SAS doctor is and, more importantly, what it is not? I can certainly tell you what it is. Um, well, I'll try and figure out if I can explain what it's not. <laughs> um, so since, since the founding of the NHS, there have always been doctors who were not consultants, not GPs and not in formal training programmes. These doctors have always existed. And over the history of the NHS, they've gone by various names because the contracts have changed and therefore the kind of the contractual descriptions of them have changed. Um, at the moment, and so I'll, actually I'll give you a little bit of history. So for most of kind of 
the 80s and 90s and into the early noughties, the, the contracts that we used most commonly were the staff grade and the associate specialist contract. So that's where we get SAS from. SAS comes from staff grade and associate specialist. These contracts both closed to new entry in late 2008, early 2009. Um, and at that point, existing staff grades had the opportunity to transition to the shiny new specialty doctor contract, um, and anyone appointed since 2009, including myself, um, is most likely to be a specialty doctor. Um, there are still some um, pre-2009 associate specialists out there, so there are still a number of associate specialists working, um, but the majority of us now are specialty doctors. Um, and one of the things that that's kind of highlighted, perhaps, is that... Uh, there used to be a junior role and a senior role, and for the last 12 years, there has only really been one role. Um, and the idea was that everybody would be a specialty doctor and your entire career would be contained within that one title. But the problem with that, of course, is that there's no way of differentiating seniority. Um, so a lot of people and a lot of organisations felt very strongly that we needed a new senior role to progress to. We needed a kind of a destination role. Um, which we've got in all four nations over the last um, two years. Um, so there is now a specialist contract as well. So if SAS used to stand for staff grades and associate specialists, it now probably stands for specialty doctors and specialists. That is that is what it is. The crucial thing with this is that the SAS contracts are the nationally negotiated contracts for your work. If you find yourself outside of a formal training program, but not a consultant and not a GP, the other group that we probably need to, to touch upon tonight are the locally employed doctors. And mm -hmm. locally employed doctors are the single most rapidly rising part of the workforce. And um, we've alluded to some of the kind of one year breaks from training, foundation, FY3, FY4 type years, clinical fellow, trust doctor type jobs have become very, 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 very common. Um, what differentiates those groups from doctors like myself is that those groups are on trust-derived contracts created by their employer. They vary from one organisation to the next, um, which carries some very predictable problems. Mm. So one of the things that I do in the world is to try and explain to people what the SAS contracts are, what they are for, what the eligibility requirements of them are, in the hope of empowering a few people who found themselves outside of training longer term to get themselves onto the right contract for their work, because that at the moment is very much not happening. And you say how, you know, you sort of reflected on things that didn't go so well in your journey as a trainee that led you to become uh, a SAS doctor. What benefits do you get by being a SAS doctor? And what things do you not get by being a SAS doctor? Um, so I would say on paper, there are some enormous benefits and some very, very attractive elements of being a SAS doctor. So SAS contracts are usually substantive. So mm. rather than rotating every six to 12 months, you could find a department you like and say, I'm going to stay here forever and apply for a specialty doctor job. And then potentially, if you wanted to stay there forever on that contract. Um, so one potential advantage is that you don't necessarily have to carry on rotating. You could develop your career in one place. Um, the other thing that a SAS contract gets you is that it gets you the contractual rights to a job plan and to SPA time, which otherwise... If you are a trainee, you do not necessarily have these things um, mm. where you certainly don't have a job plan. SPA time has become an awful lot more common, kind of paid admin time has become an awful lot more common. When I was a trainee, that was completely unheard of. But, you know, as a SAS doctor, you could get a job plan, some SPA time for your own professional development and your own admin and your own mandatory training and keeping up with the non-clinical side of your work um, and a predictable job plan where you know where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing from a far earlier stage in your career all while developing within one organisation. So 
it could be for a number of people exactly what they're looking for if they are having difficulties within a training program, if they knew it existed. And that is part of why I do what I do in the world, is trying to trying to raise awareness so that people can make informed career choices. Um, obviously, there is always a trade-off. So trainees are training programmes are funded by the government, they are funded by HEE, and trainees who are working within an organisation are, in theory, um, having some of their wages paid by Health Education England and are being developed by the organisation because the organisation is being paid to develop them. As a SAS doctor, your, you know, your professional development becomes much more your own affair and a lot, a lot of people have to, do, have to do battle for it. They have to fight for development opportunities and, and you know, actually speak up for themselves a great deal more than perhaps a trainee does to be allowed to develop within their role. Um, and part of that is you know, the cultural element of being a SAS doctor. People are told that they are service roles and people are told that these are non-training roles. And actually, I think both of those things, you know, they do not really stand up to scrutiny. And we need the future of the workforce to be as good as it can be. And there have been a large number of national documents describing the importance of SAS career development. The difficulty at the moment is the culture of the roles requires, requires you to speak up for yourself um, and mm. you know, push for those development opportunities. Jason, I want to move on to you because obviously when you applied, you were an international medical graduate and historically uh, locally employed doctors, but but SAS doctors as well, there is a much greater proportion of those doctors who are international medical graduates for various reasons. And I think you've already touched on the fact that applying as an international medical graduate is incredibly difficult to a UK training programme. And I think that's becoming more so rather than less. Um, Did you know anything about other roles or other ways to become, you know, a senior hospital specialist or become a surgeon in the UK other than the formal training pathways? Yeah, so that's a good question, Clara, because I distinctly remember when I came across here, um, like I mentioned, I was a postgraduate student, um, but my program was attached to an academic unit uh, in the west of Scotland in Glasgow, and I was exposed to lots of consultants there. So obviously, I would speak to them to get like some advice on what I should do and what I should apply for. So I was well aware of the structured training program, but I had this discussion with a consultant once, and he said, you know. It's extremely difficult to get into those programs as an international medical graduate. And he suggested that, you know, try to get like a like a normal job, like a staff grade job for a couple of years and get some experience. And then maybe then you can apply for a structured training program. Or he said, you know, you can just be a staff grade for a number of years and then you can do the CESAR route. Um, and those were the kind of two options that I was told of at that particular point in time, either a structured training program or just become a staff grade and then you can do CESA or do your FRCS and then get to be a consultant, but going along that non-traditional, non-structured route. And I guess when I thought about those options and I spoke to several other people, they told me to not to go down that CESA route because it's notoriously difficult. You have mm-hmm. to collect a lot of uh supporting data to become a consultant doing the CESAR route. And I just found that the structured route just seems a lot more easier. It's well-defined. Mm. You know, you have to maintain certain competencies throughout your training program, which are monitored and assessed. And I just felt that that was a lot easier for me to deal with than having to get in a hospital, get other consultants to sign me off for things. I think it's a real, strug- it's a real struggle. Uh, and that's why I kind of focused on getting a training 
getting a training number and, and doing a formal training program. I think it's really interesting um, just to pick up what you said as well, Rob, about people's perception of what these roles are um, and what they mean. Flo, you're you're obviously in the in the middle of thinking about where you're going to go <laughs> next. You're in the middle of a bottleneck, aren't you? Really, um, and lots of curriculum changes. Um, have you ever considered alternative career pathways, or have you always just assumed that? this is what's laid out for you and you've just got to jump on the the next treadmill that that comes up in front of you. So I was quite interested in trying to do something academic alongside training and as everyone I'm sure knows like that or in the UK anyway um, the academic training pathways are just ridiculously competitive Mm. and I mean this is a bit of a personal bugbear a little bit hidden like they're not you know, the information about how to apply and when to apply and what jobs are available and, and how you're likely to be successful, to me, feels quite opaque. And like, you kind of have to know someone to know it. So I've definitely considered it more of from the point of view of like training less than full time and then seeing what you can do alongside that. And I've met other people who are sort of thinking about that. Maybe I've just not got to the point in terms of the sort of alternative careers. I think it depends on your specialty, doesn't it? I, um, how likely that is that you know the kind of Caesar pathway that you're going to get to where you want to get to because one of the training pathways I'm considering is public health and and that feels like it would be very very difficult to to do that for that pathway but maybe there's more considerations I need to make following this I've also just learned sorry this is total side shoot but very helpful Rob's explanation there because I was wondering I've had a couple of years as a locally employed doctor um and I wasn't sure if I was due a pay pay upgrade from the that national but uh whatever that pay settlement was the last one but it looks sounds like I probably wasn't um from Rob's (laughs) explanation so that was very helpful We're banding around terms, I mean, we're banding around the term consultant a lot. And I guess what I'm really interested in is, as a SAS doctor, are you a consultant? And if you're not, what really is the difference between a very senior SAS doctor and a consultant, apart from the name? Well, it depends very much on the very senior SAS doctor and the consultant that you have in front of you. Mm. Um, so there are there are certainly SAS doctors who are working as consultants in all aspects of their work, both clinical and non-clinical. These doctors mm. exist. Um, I wouldn't say they were necessarily the majority because the majority of people who become SAS doctors are doing something else, are walking a different route. For some people, that would be their goal. Um, and there are certainly there is certainly a workforce need. So senior experienced SAS doctors who become specialists, some of those specialists, so the new senior SAS contracts, some of those doctors will undoubtedly either start on or progress on to consultant on call rotors, in which case the badge they are wearing really doesn't, you know, really doesn't matter. If they are doing the same work to the same standard and working on the same rotors in the same way, then they are consultants. Um, however, for the majority of senior SAS doctors, so the specialist role requires that you work independently or autonomously within your clinical niche, and your clinical niche may be smaller than that of a consultant within the same specialty. Um, this does lead to some philosophical questions with the nature of super subspecialization, certainly in tertiary referral centres. If a consultant starts their career as an expert in the broad the breadth of their specialty and narrows their focus down onto a smaller area, and a specialty doctor develops specifically in that area and that becomes their clinical niche and you end up with two people who are experts via different routes 
Again, it all becomes a little bit philosophical. Um, the mm. nature of being a SaaS doctor is that you won't be rotating around multiple organizations, seeing how multiple different doctors do things and honing your own practice. You may be working with a little bit less supervision from a slightly earlier point in your career and developing your own practice, or you may be working alongside a smaller group of people. And the, the word apprenticeship was used earlier on, which I quite like. You know, you may be progressing your career more as an apprentice to a small number of consultants in a smaller department rather than rotating around and gaining experience from multiple consultants in multiple departments or multiple SaaS doctors in multiple departments. Um, mm. I think, you know, they're, they're being a SaaS doctor or the SaaS cohort is a very, very heterogeneous group. So to become a specialty doctor, you only need two years postgraduate experience in your specialty. Four years postgraduate experience, total two in your specialty, that's it. So there are specialty doctors who are working at a very, very junior level. Um, and there should be, because that's the nature of the role. It, the pay scale is designed that when you start the role, you, are, you have kind of CT3, ST3 level experience, and the pay scale is designed that way. So. If you are required to work to a far higher standard than that, you aren't necessarily seeing the pay <laughs> um, associated with that. And it should be normal for specialty doctors to progress. Um, and you know the, the pay scale for the specialty doctor pay scale expects you to progress and to become a more senior doctor than you were at the beginning. And the restoration of a senior role means that at some point in, in an ideal world, you will see career progression, a change of title, a new more generous pay scale to reflect that you are a more senior doctor and this is why I talk of it as an alternative career pathway rather than a role or a job you know being a SAS doctor should be a route um, and, and I think that's something that perhaps requires a slight cultural shift because again for that to be the case there has to be an expectation that doctors will develop and progress within these roles and I think that is one of the cultural barriers that I'm trying to do battle with in the work that I do nationally is that, you know, it, it's, it is important for the workforce and for individuals within the workforce that every doctor has the opportunity to reach their own individual potential, regardless of what it says on their badge. I was going to say, do you wish that somebody had thought more about the name specialty doctor and then specialist? Like, even with you just haven't explained it, I'm like, wait, which one is he talking about now? <laughs> I think we've been we have been somewhat beholden to the whims of uh, of the of employer side negotiators. I, I don't think that the term specialist necessarily came from the staff side negotiators. It is an odd one having specialty doctors and specialists. Um, it is it is an odd one, but I think specialist reflects the it's it's a it's a, a homage to history because the old senior role was the associate specialist, um, and I think you know in the in the rise of associate coming to mean non medical. I hate using nons. Um, so, for example, within my own specialty, there are anaesthesia associates who are from a nursing or an ODP background. And I think the, the, there was a very deliberate choice not to say associate specialist and not to reopen the role because it, I think there was a, a, a choice made that there would be confusion between medical and non-medical roles. So we now have confusion between two medical roles instead. <laughs> The amount of times I've introduced medical students, especially female medical students, and people have been like, oh, thank you for your nurse talking to me. And I'm like, no. Uh, um, I guess this is a question for, well, Flo, and to a certain extent, Jason. Both of you have been through or are going through formal training pathways recently. If you had to name your top three bugbears... <laughs> 
I'll tell you mine. Because <laughs> I have genuinely had many, many thoughts. Particularly because I've just done two jobs that involve commuting two and a half hours a day and I think that really focuses the mind on why am I doing this um, and I have really really thought about other career pathways and I think commute is a is a really big one for people especially in areas where there's you know big geographical areas deaneries where you're rotating from one side of the deanery to the other to the other um, I guess my other ones are lack of autonomy about my work schedule or rotor which Rob's obviously mentioned and rotating every six months is just to me the most frustrating thing ever so those would be my sort of three bugbears with training pathways Flo what are yours? Uh, I'm just going to pick up on your commuting point there and then I'll tell you mine because (laughs) we had a conversation quite recently actually I think at the end of the sustainability podcast about someone was saying they should do the carbon footprint of Mm. um, everybody's commutes and my training was based in North East London which is one of the smaller deaneries and that's a massive incentive for me to stay here I hate driving and hate commuting (laughs) and so it would be you know if I were to start thinking about training programs that weren't based there I'd really double think about it but I guess my personal bugbears are I mean I've been caught in the core medical training to internal medicine training like switch over I was the last year of CMT and because I was less than full-time at the end, actually finished it late. And lots of things happened at the same time. It was unfortunate that, that it sort of all happened at the same time as COVID. So lots of different changes in the way that applications for the next stage of training change at the same time. But it wasn't a smooth process. And and there was lots of things that, that just kind of slipped through the net, which people hadn't really thought about for whatever reason. Um, and so lots of people who got caught up with that and, and have taken a really long time to sort sort of smooth that out so yeah so changes that kind of lack of control over of of that Mm. because of changes in the way the training program is run that's probably number one yeah number two being so for core medical training you at least apply for the two years and you know where you're going to be for the two years and so that but I think you know for later on when you suddenly are being switched a very last minute of where you're going to be going each year Mm. that's two I don't know what my third is. You don't necessarily have to have three. I mean, well, I was going to ask Jason next, but Jason, I, I'm I'm already concerned about you because I was going to ask why you moved from the Caribbean to Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you're now going to say, and I loved surgical training. Every minute was amazing. <laughs> so I think, um, so yeah, so obviously the weather was a big change for me. Like I moved from... <laughs> I moved from Trinidad in 33 degree weather and then I moved to Glasgow and it was rainy and wet probably 99% of time of the year. So that was a big challenge for me adapting to that weather change. But with respect to training, I think I have to agree with both you and Flo. I think the commute was one thing. But interestingly, my first job uh, as a SD3 in Scotland, like I emailed the training program director to say, I don't have a car. I don't know the rest of Scotland. I live five minutes away from a hospital. Literally, I could walk to work in five minutes. I said, can I just work here for the first year? And then after that, I'll sort myself out. I'll be familiar with the rest of Scotland and then I can go anywhere. And the first job I got was an hour and a half away by train (laughs) from where I lived in Glasgow. And I had to get up. I, I kid you not. I got up every morning for a year at half five to leave home by six to reach the work for half seven. 
And it was an hour and a half both ways. And I was just like, you know, coming back home like at after eight almost every day. You know, and I found that to be really tough. And I just felt, and I didn't really complain about it because I felt this was just something that everyone else went through. So I just had to like put up with it for a year. And then after that year, I didn't have to make any long commutes after that. And I didn't. After that first year, everything else was reasonable for my rest of my training. So that was one thing, the commute. We didn't have to rotate every six months, but normally every year I had to rotate. And what I didn't like about that is that when you started somewhere new, you had to prove yourself. So you had mm. to prove yourself to the new consultants. You had to prove yourself to the nursing staff. You mm. have to prove yourself. And, I, and I, I have that insecurity where because I'm not British, I talk with an accent. I think sometimes people have these unconscious biases about like foreign medical graduates. You know, it takes a couple months for people to get to know you, to know that you're good, to know that, you know, you're clinically sound. But yeah, it just takes a while. And I think for us who've worked in hospitals for a number of years, people just, they know you. So they're not going to question you. They're not going to ask you where you're from two, three times, two, three, four times, you know, they're going to just trust you. So I think that's one of the things that I had an issue with, but it wasn't a big issue. And then the third thing is that when you go to... Let's say I'm a general surgery trainee, but I go after rotating vascular surgery, for example. You also you'll be there at an SD3, SD4 level, and then you would have like senior trainees who are SD7, SD8. And sometimes because they are vascular trainees and you're not, they might sometimes try to like take cases off for you. So mm. they might say, "Well, I'm a vascular trainee. I need to do this. You don't, you're not really a vascular trainee." So that was a bit annoying and it's a bit of a power play, but. You know, once you stood your ground and stuff, like they respected you. But that was my third thing that I didn't really like about training. I think that's such a, that particularly your anecdote about, um, you know, you've arrived literally from the Caribbean to the west of Scotland and they're like, get on this train every day. I mean, that's just, and I think this is the thing that frustrates me a bit is that there is no appreciation for individuals in training anymore it just seems like this big sort of black box that you get popped into and popped out the other end and you know I think if you've got a really good TPD and you're really lucky great but the majority of us are numbers on a page and you know we're filling a a service really aren't we um there was an excellent piece um that was actually in the BMJ so I I promise I haven't been paid to to plug this um by uh Greta McLachlan and Peter Brennan about um survivorship bias in training and how we just look at the people that come out as consultants and say oh well they did it so you know that's it and we don't look at the people that haven't completed training programs why they haven't completed them maybe because they just come from Trinidad and got popped in a random place in the west coast of Scotland um I guess is there a way that we can fix that within formal training programs um I'm looking at you Rob you know can we fix that or really is the answer that we should be advocating for ourselves and almost making our own training programs um through you know I guess increasing the role of of SAS doctors um I think I think the solution here is probably a little of both um I think you know if you were to change nothing at all if you were to have formal training programs but more knowledge of the alternatives to formal training programs I think that would do a lot of good you know I think if people were more empowered to say 
these are the these are the sacrifices I have to make if I'm going to be in a formal training program. This is the alternative, and these are the sacrifices I'll have to make if I do that. And we mm. gave everybody an actual informed choice in the way that we do for our patients. I think people would make the choice that suits them and would accept the choice that they took. I think the problem we have at the moment is an awful lot of resentment on both sides, where people who mm. cannot get a training program are profoundly resentful of those who can, and people who are in training programs are profoundly resentful of some of the aspects of being a trainee. I think that the lack of choice, the kind of that, I think, feeds into some of the discontent within the workforce. And I think if more people have more choice and the choices they made were informed, that might actually make everyone a little bit happier. That said, um, I think formal training programs do need to change. Personally, I think formal training programs at the moment are profoundly rigid. Um, a lot has been gained over the last 10, 15 years. A lot of things have changed even over the course of my career. So the rise in, you know, the the fact that a lot of training programs that were, were originally planned to be run through have become uncoupled has meant that people have then opted or found themselves having one or two year breaks between core and higher training or between IMT and I'm not even sure what higher medical training is called anymore. Um, the, 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 the kind of, the, the, an element of choice has been entered into by the fact that people are opting not to progress straight from foundation programs into core training or from core training into higher training. And I think that reflects people choosing their own path. It also reflects a shortage of, of training programs, obviously. Um, but I do think that actually you've all alluded to something that I think everybody recognises, which is there are elements of training programs at the moment that are just inhumane. You know, if mm. you, you live within sight of a hospital and you give a reason why that hospital would be the sensible place for you to spend your first year in the UK and someone says, no, you can commute an hour and a half. I mean, is it any wonder that we lose people? You know, mm. is it any wonder that we lose people? And, the, and the, the, the problem is we aren't losing people into SAS roles. We aren't losing people into the alternatives that should be, you know, that, that should be there. We're just losing people out of the workforce entirely. People are, people are voting with their feet and going abroad or they're leaving medicine and going into other industries within the UK. These things are workforce issues and we're in a workforce crisis. It just, it's, it's, um, it, 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 it never ceases to amuse me that we are pushing people out of the workforce mm. by how we treat trainees and how we treat our colleagues. You know, and I think there are a few easy wins with informal training programs, in my opinion, that could potentially make them more attractive. You know, we've all talked about rotating every six months as being a source of an enormous amount of frustration and how if you could have a longer period within one hospital so you didn't have to continually sell yourself for the first two to three months and then have two to three months of being comfortable and then move. You know, if, mm. if you had, if every block was 12 months, for example, that might solve some problems. I mean, obviously, if you find yourself working somewhere you really dislike and you're stuck there for 12 months, it introduces new problems. But there, there, are, there are things here that could be done that might make some aspects of being a trainee a little bit more tolerable. Um, a bit more choice, exactly as Jason's described, a bit more choice about which hospitals you rotate to. Now, obviously, every hospital has to get trainees. There is a reason why we have rotational training programs. It benefits trainees, but it also benefits geographically isolated hospitals who otherwise will not get any through footfall. You know, and, and those patient populations need a future generation of doctors who want to work in those organizations as well that those geographically isolated hospitals get trainees and some of those trainees will choose to work there if they never got any trainees they would never get any future consultants or SAS doctors there is a reason why training programs are structured the way they are um, and it may be to the short-term detriment of doctors but actually in the long-term part of the reason why these things exist is that it means 
the patient populations those hospitals serve will see new doctors, some of whom will then choose to stay. And that is that is important too. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think there are clearly some aspects of formal training which could be much, much better. And perhaps it wouldn't be enormously difficult to do it. But we do seem reluctant to do it, don't we? I'm interested, going back to you, um, Jason mentioned something earlier about, um, you know, the vascular, senior vascular trainees saying, oh, we're a vascular trainee, we're going to have these cases. Is that something that you have seen, Rob, or you've heard people talk about happening to SAS doctors, people saying, oh, well, you know, we should give the opportunities or, you know, whether they're training opportunities or educational opportunities to to formal trainees rather than than SAS doctors. And if that's the case, how do we stop that from happening? And, you know, is this really about a mass rebrand of of what we mean by a SAS doctor or, you know, is it about making rules? A mass rebrand of what being a SAS doctor means. You pretty much summed up what I've been doing for the last three years, mate. Um, uh, no, I, I, I think yes, that there is there is absolutely a current cultural problem with being a SAS doctor that means you are denied development opportunities, and it isn't necessarily because those development opportunities are going to trainees. It's because your development isn't necessarily seen as important. These things are seen as, or can be seen in some organisations and some departments as purely service roles. So people look at you like you have two heads if you want development opportunities, because obviously if you wanted to develop, you should be a trainee. Um, And I I think that is a problem that we have to overcome. And we have to overcome it not just for individual doctors. We have to overcome it for the sake of the future of the workforce. I mean, just a few statistics here. Um, The tail end of last week, the number of doctors on the GMC register who are not trainees or consultants or GPs um, became the biggest column at the end of last week. So there are... As of Friday, I think, because I check this two or three times a week, that's how sad I am. Um, as of Friday, I think, um, the 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 SAS slash locally employed column on the medical register became the most numerous group. And in order for all of those doctors to enter into formal training programs and become consultants, we would need a spectacular expansion in the number of training numbers. And that is not going to happen. I mean, a, a, a rise in the number of training numbers is obviously needed, but it would need to be spectacular for all of those doctors to be able to enter into formal training programs. But they are still our current colleagues and they are still the future of the workforce. So what happens to the people in that column matters a great deal. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do a lot of, I give a lot of talks and I write a lot of articles about the importance of developing everybody towards their own individual potential. And that's not just, you know, nice for the SAS doctors. I think it's really important because we want there to be a future workforce. Um, And that requires a bit of a cultural shift. It requires people who are outside of formal training programs being seen as important future colleagues as well as the service they provide today. Um, The mass rebrand, as you describe it. Jason, you look after a lot of the the junior doctors at work. What's your feeling about what their... I hate using this word, but what their vibe vibe is uh, about about the state of things at the moment. You know, are they all thinking, yeah, we all want to go into training. This is going to be great. Or do do you think that there's been a bit of a shift in the way that people see training? So I think I think there has been a shift. I think I mean, I'm I'm a fairly newish consultant. And I think when I look at my training, you know, seven, eight years ago compared to now, I think the trainees that I worked with, you know, they were very much focused on developing those skills that they required to become a consultant. So they were always in the hospital. They were staying back late. They were coming in when they were off off duty, you know, just to get that experience. 
And I think I was also like that as well. I think I was just 100% focused on becoming a general surgeon. Um, I think now, I think trainees now, they, they want a bit more flexibility. You know, they want to work less than full time. They, they want to, you know, have that work-life balance. And I think that's fine. I think everyone has their own um, priorities in life. And I think for me, you know, I wasn't married. I don't have any kids that I know of. Um, so, I was, <laughs> so I was, uh, so I was quite, um, I, I was, I had that freedom and that luxury of being there all the time. Whereas I think now things are changing. People, you know, they want to spend time with their wife and kids or their husband and kids. You know, they want to enjoy life. And I think that's a big shift that I have noticed personally among trainees. Um, you know, and, and that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't make any judgments on that. I think, you know, everyone's life is different. But I'm not sure how is that going to translate in the future to the caliber of senior consultants that we will have. Because I think, I think to be a surgeon, you have to put in that time. You have to put in that effort. And I think sometimes I don't see that. Um, coming from some trainees, not all, just some of them. And I think that will have an impact in the future when they become consultants. Um, and that has me a bit concerned, I think. We had um, a very interesting episode on generational divides and I actually had my dad on it, who's in his 70s now um, and has retired. And he was talking about his life as a young doctor, which is almost inconceivable to me you know they had this like buffet every day and a doctor's dining room and everyone went to work and it was really fun you know they weren't going to work and you know getting day text all the time and getting reported for things and having to you know constantly get berated because the flow of the department wasn't you know up to scratch and I think it is just less fun at the moment and I do wonder if maybe that is the reason that a lot of people you know, you don't want to be at work all the time if it's not fun. Of course you want to be at home more. I mean, that's totally understandable. Um, I don't know, Flo, do you, would you agree with that? Do you think that's, do you think there's been a bit of a, a shift in, in how much you, you love being at work? Yeah, and I think it's happened even like really quite quickly over the last few years, just speaking to colleagues who, you know, working at the same hospital we all worked at a few years ago and and they're like, no, I I can't see myself, you know, really, really good colleague who's like, who was going to do geriatrics. And she's like, I, do, I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my career because it's just so demoralising how, yeah, unenjoyable it can be at work. There's still obviously really nice things about going to work and, and the colleagues and your interactions with the patients and so on. But I think whole accumulation of things have made have made it less so more recently and that's why we probably need to fix some of these problems because some of that is because we don't have the workforce and therefore uh, going to work is harder if you're always under that different level of strain no I agree with Flo I think I think when I trained here in, in the west of Scotland like I don't think we had issues with you know not enough staff and you know the rotors were always you know, well um, supported and stuff like that. So yeah, going to work, you wasn't you weren't going to work to be on call all the time because you had two or three doctors off. So for me, you were going to work, you were getting to operate, which is what surgeons like to do. And that is a big part of the enjoyment of being a surgeon is getting to operate. And I think, I think you're absolutely right, Flo. I think when we see trainees now, like six months ago, I had, you know, four trainees covering seven slots on a router 
you know, and they were constantly on call. They were being asked to come in and cover night shifts, like within the last, with very short notice, you know, and that's not enjoyable. If I was a trainee in that sort of scenario, I probably would be like, no, I don't want to come to work. I don't want to do this because all I'm doing is providing a, a service. I'm not really getting trained. I'm just filling numbers. So I think definitely tra- I understand why trainees say I don't want to come to work and do extra because it's horrible. So I completely get that. And related to that point is, is how much time at work you are spending doing things that feel like they're benefiting your skills as a doctor and therefore your training. Um, and, you know, Jason, you said, like, you're worried about the future of the consultant workforce if, um, you know, if people aren't having that same level of dedication that you showed. You know, one thing is we say, oh, well, we need to go back to everyone coming in on their off days and, 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 and that. Or we just look and say, actually, what activities are we getting lots of people to do that aren't benefiting their skills and their training? And, you know, is there some way we need to change system change or, or something so that, that you take away those activities so that people can have a work life balance, but also still get that level of clinical training um, and that decision making ability or, or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, surgical skills that you need to be a, a consultant. I think going back to Rob's point about um, apprenticeships, I think is an interesting one in this situation, because I would like to think that health education England knows exactly what I need as a trainee, build me as a consultant. But I'm going to be honest, I don't think they do. I don't think they have a clue. You know, I think that there is some book somewhere that says these are your competencies and you need to do X amount of operations and Y amount of work-based assessments. But ultimately, in my when I'm having my little daydreams, I know which hospital I'd go to. I know which set of consultants I would work for. I know which activities I would say I want to do every week or this many endoscopy lists or this many operating lists, some clinics, some whatever. And I don't think that my training pathway really represents that at all I don't think it gives me half of those things that I need I think that you know majority of the time and I quite like service provision I like being on call I know it's really boring for a lot of people but you know I don't mind it um and I think that there is a huge amount to be said for what you've said Rob is that personalized apprenticeship approach you know you go somewhere where they know you they know what they need from you you know what they need they need from you and you know, you come out as a as a fully formed consultant at the end of it, or a specialty doctor working in the capacity of a consultant, but maybe getting a bit more of you what you want and not giving all of these other bits of yourself that actually sometimes can feel a bit inhumane and unreasonable. I feel like I'm going to do a really. I'm going to stand up for HEE now. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I know <laughs> because I I, I think. Yes, they probably don't know what you personally, Clara Mandaro, needs. But you make it sound like these just kind of get plucked. I think there, there is obviously a process behind mm. thinking about what we do. And what you've described is maybe in this, perf- as you say, in this kind of perfect dream world, which will rely on the people around you. One relies on you having that insight into knowing what you need, but also has relies on an individual training you who can say actually yeah that's Clara she needs a little bit more practice on this but you know she's very good at this so maybe we don't need to send her there or whatever which is great obviously if you've got that person but the moment our current system is more I mean I'm not saying our current system it's lots of flaws with it but it's about kind of having a minimum standard that you can apply everywhere and that and that's again it comes back to a philosophical point is do we just accept 
that we have this minimum like flawed system that we know at least won't let anyone completely slip through the net or do we kind of aim for something bigger well yeah and I and I think with Clara's point as well I think you know if we had a choice as a trainee we would always want to go and work with the best trainers with the best trainees with the best nurses with the best nursing staff because yeah it'll be so much fun and so so enjoyable but I think that's going to create issues with one what Rob alluded to earlier with the other hospitals on the periphery, like the the ones in you know where you've written before, um, Clary, you may not have any doctors going there. And then what's going to happen to the patients there? You know how are the hospitals there going to run? That creates more of a problem. But also, I think, and I appreciated this as I become as I became a consultant, is that you know it's very easy to work with people that you get along with. Uh, and trainees that you get along with and trainers that you get along with. But when you become a, a consultant, you know, you're going to have patients that you really love. You're going to have patients that are going to be difficult. You're going to have colleagues that are going to be dif- difficult to you. And I think you need to develop those skills of working in unfamiliar or uncomfortable positions. And I think rotating through different hospitals gives you that ability to 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 manage that, actually, because you might you might have a great experience in one hospital, go to another hospital and just have a really horrible experience, but you manage that in a certain way. And you take that with you when you become a more senior and more a consultant as well. So I think there is some thought process be, behind moving people around, not every six months, but you know, every year, just so that you get those other skills that you might need, those other people's skills and soft skills. I think that's a really fair point and I, I completely take on board that my <laughs> dream training programme I created is probably <laughs> great for me and not great for everyone else. <laughs> it's interesting though, I mean, because you can become a consultant without doing it. And that is the other point here is that the CESR process means that you could indeed develop within one organisation and with short step out to go and gain what you need in a very subspecialised area, you could you could very definitely achieve everything that's required to become a consultant within one department or a couple. And again, I would argue that the colleagues who have achieved CESR have, have done it the hard way. Um, mm. and, and and we would all, I think, probably agree that there is an extraordinary amount of effort required in doing it. But again, if rotational training programmes that force you to change every six months for seven years are so important, why do we let people on the specialist register who haven't done it? Um I'd also say there is another big philosophical point to be had here. I'm full of big philosophical points that, you know, the the purpose of training programs is to generate the next generation. But we now have a vast number of doctors who aren't in them. Um, Mm. And also, you know, if we are if we are using workforce planning and, and the number of training numbers to anticipate the future workforce need, if it's all joined up in some way, why does the workforce look the way it currently does with such a huge number of doctors who aren't part of formal training programs? Um, and, and also there is very definitely a balance to be struck between the needs of the service, the needs of what we have to do to develop a doctor into being a future consultant, and the fact that if we break people so much that they leave, then that is to the detriment of the future service. And at the moment, I think Certainly, there are plenty of people who are choosing to take their talent out of the UK. And this has been reflected in various recent documents that have been produced by the GMC. Um, Charlie Massey gave a very empowered speech to the NHS Providers Conference in Liverpool talking about how doctors still like to practice medicine. It isn't the work that is making people leave. It's the workplace. Um, And that is consultants, that is trainees, that is SAS doctors. You know, 
at the moment, there are aspects of being a doctor in the UK that are making doctors in the UK choose not to be doctors anymore. Um, mm. And that's true of every group. Um, so perhaps we could do it better um, and keep a few more people. I think what I'm hearing from from all of you, well, particularly Rob and, and Jason, who have, you know, come at similar jobs in a very different way um well not so different but a bit different um is that we have one way of training people at the moment but there are an awful lot of different types of people and ultimately if you want to do a particular type of job and you're happy moving every six months and you're going to sign up to that I think as you say Rob that's completely fair enough and at least you're going into it with your eyes open I think the fact that there is another option, um, you know, I was never, we went on lots of career days when I was in F1 and 2, and no one ever told me, do you know what, if you want to do a couple of operations and a nice couple of two-week weight clinics and some hernias, you don't have to do surgical training, there is another option. And I really wish that someone had told me that, because I think my my decisions would definitely be different now. So I think maybe it's, you know, it's just building that into the conversations that we're having with with our F1s and 2s and 3s and 4s and 5s these days um and just changing the way that we we give people options because i think just saying this is the only way at the moment is i think that's restricting people and that's making people leave isn't it i like that point it's lots of different types of people and we shouldn't yeah Maybe well it I'll seems really obvious my... doesn't it <laughs> yeah well <I'm... laughs> maybe go back on my HEE minimum standards point but yeah <laughs> But, you know, when we see patients, we don't say there's one treatment, here you go, that's it, bye. You know, shared decision-making is built into so much of what we do. So why isn't it built into the way that we choose our jobs? I mean, Mm. just having this conversation has made me realise how completely wild that is that we (laughs) don't even think about it. It all all comes down to culture in the end. And and I think, you know, this is is a a massive blind spot um, that we have as a profession and, and... there are historical elements to it, but actually, you know, they're, they're the need for routes that allow people to, to kind of walk their own path um, has perhaps never been more obvious than the current state of the workforce. Um, and that's probably why, it, you know, that's probably why there has been the restoration of a senior role um, for specialty doctors. Um, there have also been an awful lot of documents produced, an awful lot of documents produced over the last 10 years describing the need for additional routes and, you know, for being a SAS doctor, being a viable career choice. And there is a document from AOMRC called exactly that, SAS, a viable career choice. Not only does it need to be viable, it needs to be something that people can choose. Well, I think that is about all we have time for today. But thank you so much, all of you, for joining me for this episode. Uh, And thank you for listening to Doctor Informed. We're really keen to hear from our listeners for ideas of future discussions and for reflections on the topics we have discussed today or in the past. Please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people you know. Telling your friends about it really helps people find us. If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and you'll be notified of when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us. Thank you.